Okay, welcome to Let's Get Lit, the podcast with a twist. Or a book club. One or the other. Seamless. Seamless. I will, like, one of these days, I bet you on episode, like, 512, I'm going to just nail it. It's going to be so beautiful. And then that's going to be the day we end the podcast. I was going to say, do you really think we're going to read that many books? Because I don't have that much faith in us. That's only 256 Wow. Books. Wow. And when I said that I didn't have any faith in you, all of a sudden it was a problem. <laughs> and in case you didn't notice, Sparkle's back on the pod. Oh, Sparkle's Woo! back to the pod. Has a lot of confidence for being new to the club. Just well, I've been pre-gaming. I've been pre-gaming my confidence. Well, Sparkle, what have you been second... pre-gaming with? Well, not the drink of the eve. <gasps> I know. I know. So what did you pair with Killers of the Flower Moon? Dirty, Other dirty, sad me. whiskey. Ah, is it poison? Puddle, puddle whiskey. It is. I, I, there's a romaine lettuce garnish. Oh, no. Sounds dangerous. It is dangerous. Um, no, I'm just having whiskey and a PBR, which is the the drink of the summer. <laughs> yes. Basically the end of the year, but anyway. So this week we are going to be chatting about um, Killers of the Flower Moon, which we actually have read and get to give you all the spoilers. Yeah, so if you haven't read it, we will warn you when we're going to say something that's a spoiler. If we remember... It depends on how many drinks we've had, so, you know, proceed with caution. To that point, this week we are drinking moonshine again, but we have improved the moonshine, and we are drinking apple pie moonshine. We've softened it a bit, you could say, because it turns out it was a little strong last time. <laughs> when you drink it straight, it has some funny side effects, turns out. I I'm blind, by the way. <laughs> well, I spent a lot of time coming up with all of the words. I, I, I kicked myself. Last time I went to sleep and I thought, oh, I knew so many more lyrics from Wild Wild West that I didn't even bring out. Ah, missed opportunity, but now's your chance. Well, and and then I I was so shocked. I I went and I started rhyming to myself, and then I was like, surely that that's right. I'm ready, and I was like, surely that cannot be correct. But then when I looked up the lyrics, I was like a hundred percent accurate. So it just goes to show you that it's a great song. Great songs are are indelible in one's memory, and it was a formative time for me in my rap career, and that's why I am. Well, actually, you guys are actually talking to DJ Jazzy Jeff right I now. I was just gonna say I'm surprised. Moonshine did you pretty well last time that you gave up on it that quickly. I doubt you drank your entire kind of gas station blackberry moonshine concoction. Um, I definitely did. I definitely had to fly with it. It was but a shot. So no, I I wasn't actually. It was it was essentially a shot. I wasn't actually. So that was your behavior on a shot of moonshine. No, that was my behavior after a shot of moonshine and then a whole bunch of whiskey, which is what I'm doing now. I'm staying true to what brought out the genius because there have been a lot of letters and a lot of phone calls about how genius I was. And I'm just gonna go and double down on what made me so great. I think here that's I go. The right I'm move. gonna. I'm. I'm taking another whiskey shot right now. I hate this. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. Do it for the cast. Oh, I hated that. It's okay. Uh. Well, I mean, you hated that, but how did you feel about the book, Sparkle? You know what? I didn't like it. What? Did you hate it, or did you just not like it? Well, here's the thing. Um, it's a yes or no question, but sure. Tell us everything. Okay, I think it's really important in the canon insofar as everybody, like we said last week, everybody should read this story. Everybody should know this story. Plus, my God, like now that I've read this, it's opened up a, a consciousness whereby every time I'm on the internet now, I just see the modern day echoes of it. And just how mm-hmm. how horrible the United States still treats this population of people. I see it now every time I turn. That said, uh, David Gran is not my favorite writer. Not Have my you favorite. read anything else by him? No, but I'm just going to go and read this Amazon review. Okay, because... tell us what this Amazon review says. Let it speak for you. 
fascinating and important story told tediously. I and and this is how I'm not gonna how I'm not gonna go and <laughs> Amazon go reviews echoed that sentiment because I'm just gonna jump out here. This and is say three stars. I did not are, hate it. No, no, no. Most people didn't. This is a three stars. Or it was six percent of the reading public. So to be clear, on Amazon. 70% of people thought it was a five-star book, best they ever read. 21% thought it was four stars. 6% thought it was three, 2% thought it was two, and 1% thought it was one. I'm right in that 6%. Of three stars? Three stars. Three stars is what I give this book. because. So you said this... you didn't like it. I feel like three stars means you liked it, but you didn't love it. Well, I felt like the reviews that I was seeing that were three starsies were to me accurate depictions of how I felt. Maybe that just meant that me and this guy Larry on Amazon, maybe we're overdoing it on the stars. Maybe we were we're a little liberal stars wise. Because to no. me it's a two it's a two and a half star. And here's okay, I'm just gonna pretty quickly run through my issues with this book. Fascinating and important story told tediously, that's one. Number two, <laughs> I felt like the stakes well, I'm going to back up a little bit with a bit of a story. And you I told said, you guys this. I feel like the stakes, I'm going to back up a bit. You haven't Here. gotten anywhere. There's nowhere to back up into. I'm going to back up. Okay, so first of all, my name's Sparkle. Um, so my dad, I told you guys this. My dad called me up. And he was. I was telling him about how I was reading this. And he goes, oh, my word. That is a story of one of the worst massacres of our Wait. time. You were supposed to say spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> okay. As long as you say no, it after, it counts. Honestly, this wasn't... Well, this is my dad saying it to me. He says, that was one of the worst massacres of our time. And because of the way the book was written, I embarrassed myself mildly. And I said, shows what you know, dad. Like, so far, like, four people have died. Because, spoiler alert, the way that David Grant writes this, you find out just about the, the scale and scope of this massacre pretty much at the very end and then he's like bye bye i hope you had fun and it was like your denouement sir i really wish had been in the first page the first page plus i feel like character wise i just i think that the protagonist is supposed to be this guy tom white tom white and um i'm gonna give you an example of uh, why I think it might not be ideal for an FBI agent to be the protagonist. As written through a passage that is on chapter 16 for the Betterment of the Bureau, page 166, in which they excerpt a script of a radio drama written by an FBI agent. Oh, no, sorry. Chapter 20. So help you God, page 222. Quote, so another story ends, and the moral is identical with that set forth in all the others of the series. The criminal was no match for the federal agent of Washington in a battle of wits. These are, these are pretty uninteresting people. <laughs> they got, they got <laughs> interesting jobs, but they're not fiery. They're not mm, sexual. So I feel like I have a lot to say about all of these things. So Get first ahead. of all... I feel like if you were going to give this book less than three stars, it's because you're, like, one of those birthers or someone who just doesn't want to believe this type of history exists. Like, you're giving this two stars because you don't believe that these stories exist. That's the Count, only way counterpoint, that I can you could say Counterpoint, you could say this history is so important, it deserves a better rendering. I disagree, but still... <laughs> I also think that <laughs> this book was not written by a native person. This book was written by a fucking white dude. And I think that if you, like, he could not have tried to write this book with a protagonist that was a native person because he would have just fucked it all up. Like, I think that he wrote this book in the only way that he could have without being, like, trying to say that he knew what life was like for the Native people. I mean, I think that he did that a That might be job. fair, because I can't think of an alternative character. Certainly, no, and like, this this woman, Molly, who's kind of at the center of the story for, for most of it, it's not like there seems to be any record of her personality, or at least it does not shine in his story. <laughs> no, and I don't think that he could have. And we've talked about this before on the cast, that it's really 
weird when dudes try to write a story from a female perspective. And since Molly Burkhart was kind of the, you know, protagonist of the story itself or of this, like, horrible thing itself, that she became the centerpiece of the story, if not the protagonist. And I think that if he'd tried to tell it from her story, that it really would have fallen flat. It might have just fallen flat for me, too, because I'm not I might be the wrong audience because I like history and I like historical study. But I don't I'm not one for a procedural. And this was a hundred thousand percent procedural. And it was so the first 60 percent of the book, I was just kind of like I'm having a hard time keeping up with who lied to which agent and which agent was, you know, thrown from a train car and. (laughs) <laughs> what and 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 who did what and everything like that can I we mean, talk about the fact yeah. that you are saying i don't know i just found it a little tedious to hear who was thrown from which train car as I if did. that's just like I just did. another you know minute detail yawn i did think it was interesting yeah. because it was written as a procedural however and that kind of made me think okay we're gonna kind of go over history and it's going to be an interesting story i'm going to learn a lot about how the fbi was created and then as it was progressing my reaction was holy shit this is crazy and it's being delivered in such a just matter of fact we don't need to in any way kind of augment yeah like there's nothing you need to add here to make this more suspenseful or dramatic because just the way this happened was insane and that was why I really enjoyed it so much because I felt like it didn't need any of that kind of extra pizzazz just the well, then story I, itself I, I think I see the nuts. floor because I I don't know if we should start with somebody who's all curmudgeonly like me I guess we already did but no I'm glad we have the curmudgeonly presence I wouldn't I have mean, expected it in a sparkle but here you go let me let me just read what Larry has to say I loved Grand's Velocity of Z, so I was eager to try this. Unfortunately, it was driving its telling. I'm glad I finished it, though. It's a fascinating and important story that shows the appalling extent of exploitation that Native Americans endured. The first three quarters of the book are spent in minute details. That was interesting, but too long. The case had little to do with the birth of FBI other than it was their first, if not the first, investigation and coincided with the rise of power of J. Edgar Hoover. The final quarter rushes through the implications and unsolved mysteries of the murders, and then the book abruptly ends. In short, far too much detail about one case and then not enough detail about what it all meant in the larger picture. Not terrible, but unlike The Lost City of Z, not great. (laughs) First of all, you didn't read that. You already admitted it. But also, I mean, the book was not only about the Osage murders. Like, the tagline on here is the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. And I feel like as a person who has, you know, been a recipient of white privilege for my entire life, I was like, ooh, the birth of the FBI, that sounds interesting. These are probably murders of people that, like, will be an interesting story. I had no idea, like, that any of this even existed. And so I came to this book thinking, like, ooh, this is going to be, like, a cool mystery story about the birth of the FBI. Little did I know that it was going to have to do with all of these just horrendous atrocities. And so for me, it was like the part that drew me into it was the part about the FBI because I thought that that would be interesting, which I still found it interesting. And then it was on top of that how just bonkers this story is and like how horrifying it is. I think that that just kept my interest even more. So. Well, I, I will tell you that, the, that, no, the FBI part of it is kind of theoretically the least interesting because you're right. The thing that's craziest to me is the murders paired with the fact that all of the crimes against these people were so endorsed and backstopped by the government. And they oh, totally. really, they set the stage in this really, like, the thing that I kept on coming back to was just how bananas it was to go and have these financial guardians. And how yes. unconstitutional and how, like, I I mean, like, I, I, is there an analogous thing today that would pass muster that we allow, you know, like, it, no, I mean, there are predatory financial schemes for sure today, but this was, like, written in stone, and they're like, yep, everything looks good here to me. Come on, let's go. The I mean, only thing I can compare it to, which is... Brittany. Yes, how did you know I, I was going to say that? You were going to Yeah, how her um, family had, you know, guardianship over her for a long time when, you know, 2006, or was it 2007? It was, I don't know. It was a tough year. She downfall. was having some issues. However, I do remember thinking for years thereafter, her family continued to have 
complete control of her finances, they may still. I haven't really looked into that conservatorship. Um, but I did, I, I mean, obviously this was way Completely more egregious different. because none of these native people actually showed any negligence to be able to take care of their own property or make financial decisions for themselves. It was completely arbitrary. No one was, you know, attacking a car with an umbrella, but honestly, overreaction, I have to say. Britney forever. That's my contribution. I completely agree with that. But of course, you know, we forget the Sam Lefty years. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. There oh, are also that monster. I mean, <laughs> there, there Sam are... Lutfi was like the original guardian. That's true. Sam Lefty. Oh my god. Sam Lefty he was also a monster. He, Sam Lefty probably should have been a main character in this book. Oh my god, I wonder where he is right now. I hope he's in jail like, or something. I, I hope Sam Lefty is just like trying to star fucking failing on the sidelines of some shitty club right now. I'm sure he is. Yeah, That's probably exactly what's happening. It's just such a shame that all of the white people who are guardians in this book are probably just like their descendants are probably just living fine normal lives if not yeah. like still milking the teat of that fucking you know well, that's what I found so frustrating about it was you learn this and it's so crazy and it's so upsetting but at the end I do understand what you're saying sparkle with regard to it just kind of ends and to be fair, maybe it's because there really is no, con- like, any kind of conclusion or closure here. No, no. But I felt like I needed more, and it just ended on this very anticlimactic, oh, it actually was way worse than we ever thought, and then dot, 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 bye. Yeah, I, I felt know. like it was like his editor was like, we didn't pay you for this, this part of the book. But I, I feel like we should also back up and just make it a little bit clear in plain English what these crimes were because for anybody oh, who hasn't read kind of as a spoiler but here we go the osage indians were people who had uh beyond the fact that they had already been once removed from their land they took residence in oklahoma and then they were um they had a really sophisticated scheme whereby they were able to go and enshrine their rights to mining and other resources in the land. And it was, uh, they got head rights for the resource extraction. So it was something that you uh, could pass down among heirs, but you had to be, you had to have some affiliation with the tribe in order to get those rights. Um, you couldn't sell them to someone. They had to be inherited. The, yeah, the head rights had to be inherited. The plots of land could be uh, uh, auctioned off. But then they went and struck oil. And they became incredibly wealthy. And basically, in the popular imagination of the American public, they were really reviled for being these rich people who, in the eyes of the greater American public, just didn't deserve to have those riches. Because what did they do? Besides everything that it takes to actually like become rich. Yeah. Uh, and then the the government decided, well, these people can't really handle this much money. And so for the most part, it, with some rare exceptions, they had to have uh, there, there had to be financial guardians. Uh, and those financial guardians were all white. And those were people who locked up the money of these people based off of the, the resource extraction, based off of these the land of these Osage Indians. And I don't know what the legal challenges were that but it seems like everybody was just kind of locked in this shitty legal limbo and the people who super spoiler alert don't listen if you don't want to hear the end the people who were responsible for these massacres were uh were the very same guardians the financial guardians and and their associates who were embedded in the community and were able to very clearly draw a path for, you know, the right order of operations to go and kill people in order to go and get head rights. They had their family members marry into the family, and it was the worst betrayal because it wasn't just a betrayal of, you know, you live in my community, but it's like, you're my husband. Yeah. You're the father of my children, and so on and so forth. Can and you so remind me, what was Molly's husband's name? Ernest Buckhart. Never yeah. gonna forget you, Ernest. So that was so such an upsetting part of the book to me. Was obviously that was one of those people that you mentioned who had married into the family. Like that's how deep the scheme went. 
where people were actually willing to just fully invest their lives in really stealing this money and like ruining and murdering these people in such an insidious way. But it was just so tragic, you know, when they did finally bring everyone to trial and they brought, you know, Ernest forward and they showed it was very clear that he had been involved, that he was culpable. And Molly Burkhart didn't believe it for so long. She couldn't believe that he had been a part of her family being murdered and had been part of the plot to kill her. And I was just, that was the one part where I just felt like, oh, this is just so devastating because at a certain point she finally got it and accepted it. And I was like, how do you ever move on? I don't think you do. I mean, it's just so insidious. I mean, she did move well, on. Well, she did. She got that, married. She like lived her best and life. And apparently had a great life. But <laughs> how, yeah. yeah, how embarrassing. Like, my first ex-husband of all. got my entire fucking family killed so that he could kill me. And, and then, like, have again, all super spoiler alert. He was ready to kill their children mm-hmm. over this. That part, I, I think I gasped at that part because it's one, I mean, it's all horrible, but that is almost surprising for someone who is obviously selfish. Usually selfish people care about their own lineage because That's it's true. like a remnant of them, but oh, the fact that he like cared he so just... little about anyone around him. So the he was main... a pawn, though. Yeah, he, he was, was a pawn. pawn he was a pawn for his uncle, but his and his uncle, like he was so on his uncle's dick. I don't know. I'm also reading right now with the 40th anniversary of the Jonestown massacre. I'm also mm. reading about all these stories about all of these people who were like, "All right, I guess I'll just." kill my kids i mean they were trapped for sure they 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 had no way out and everything like that a lot of them didn't do it willingly but a lot of them did yeah and all of them were like mm, yeah well yeah, i mean and we can't we can't kind of overlook there's obviously a psychological element there which doesn't make sense to us who are not you know openly brainwashed but it's still i don't know that was just really hard for me like your kids too man you're a dick I mean, I feel like it's, it's one of those things that when you start down a road like that and you just think it's going to be something and you just watch it like spiral out of control into a way where it's like, where do, where do you draw the line? Like when yeah. you haven't drawn the line. At that point, you can't turn back. Exactly. Like how many opportunities have you had to been to be essentially say, you know, this is not something I can do morally. And then eventually you get to a point where you're like, I have like nothing is nothing is black and white. Everything's gray. I have no idea what's right and what's wrong because you have this end goal. And I think you get to a certain point where you've sacrificed so much and you've, you know, bent your moral compass to the point where it's unrecognizable that you're like, okay, well, I don't even know how to start. Like, I don't even know what's right anymore. Well, I will tell you, Brandy, it starts with illegally obtaining a hedgehog on the black market. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know it's what you're talking about. Personal detail. Not, oh, who would do such a thing? That's, who would? <laughs> that's really crossing a line you can't come back from. Don't bring Lady Butter Biscuit <laughs> into this. Oh my god, way to out yourself. Um, anyways, where do we go from there? I just wanted to warn you, Brandy. I just wanted to warn you. That's how it always starts. Well, I feel like when I was reading this book, I could not help but be outraged at multiple instances. Like I, th- I wanted to recommend this book to so many people because I think that the story is so important. And for how, um, you know, enthusiastic you are about this story, Sparkle, I feel like <laughs> even if you don't like the book or even if you have no intention of liking the book, you need to know this story. This is a for story sure. that every person in America should know because I just think that this is something that when you look at the, the things that indigenous and native people are still dealing with today i think that there's so many people in the united states who look at it and they're like oh they need to stop complaining like they do this that and the other thing and like you know they need to just stop complaining because it's not that hard like i don't think that people have a have a good understanding of what the united states has done to native people like oh my god people generally know about like the big massacre that happened in the beginning and like the trail of tears and you know, people kind of know about that kind of stuff, but it is not taught in schools. It's not recognized in, you know, even in college, I didn't read about this. I had no idea about this story until I read this book. And that's appalling. Like this is part of American history and there's no reason that we shouldn't be taught these kind of stories in school. Well, a big thing that, that well, just a big thing that David Grant talks about in the book that is super, super present today is the fact that, like, yeah, we should not gloss over this part. This is really important. 
there was a systemic uh, systemic institutionalization whereby kids were taken from their homes and put in Catholic schools. And the whole project of the day was assimilation. But assimilation at the expense of any relationship to their history, really to their families. Um, they were you know, being taken away from native languages, native practices, whatever. So there's a double death in this where, right, that everybody, like, their family perishes, but also their culture is being whittled away at the very same time. And that is something that is still this haunting echo today. There are all these people who are living today whose identity has been wiped away because they were taken from their family and put into these these Catholic schools. A lot of them really brutalized in them, really abused in these institutions. And it was all just, you know, given a, a nod and a wink of approval by the government because I mean, in the name of, of some assimilationist goal that you know only further alienated people because there's this intergenerational trauma that they have to deal with of course and I feel like I mean there's just so many things that are part of day-to-day Americana that people don't realize are just a remnant of this kind of brainwashing like the Carlisle I think it was called the Carlisle Indian School it was where they took a bunch of native people and basically like gave them haircuts and taught them to be like essentially white white British-esque Protestant people. And that's where the NFL started. What? I didn't know that. Do you not know this story? No. I'm going to tell you the 45-second version of this story. Oh, my God. I can't believe we're getting NASCAR and the NFL in I know, right? There's so much So Americana in (laughs) lieu of Thanksgiving. So there was the Carlisle Indian School where basically they took – they basically kidnapped all these Native people and – said, come to this school, we're going to teach them how to be white people, and then you'll be able to thrive in this community. And the guy who started it was rather altruistic and had the thought that, you know, if you brought Native people and taught them how to be white, then they could just assimilate into society and be fine. And I think it was that kind of first wave, like, you know, idea where if you're trying to help Native people, you just make them be white people, and that's how to help them. That's how you fix their problems. Exactly. Which is 100% fucked up on every level, but that's a different story. So anyway, they brought them to the school, and they would play the Ivy League schools in this game that resembled football, but was basically some, like, real, I don't know, really, really rough version of rugby. And they would just basically beat the shit out of each other. And it was really, really brutal. And so because the Carlisle Indian School didn't want the Native people there to be seen as, quote-unquote, savages, they were like, you need to be very gentlemanly and respectful. And, like, these are all the rules that are going to happen when you're playing this game. And those became the rules that happened in football. And the guy who was the coach of this whole thing was, they called him Pop, but his name was Pop Warner. Oh, ah! funny. Isn't that insane? And so he was he was the original coach of this place, and he basically made all of the rules that exist in what is now today football. football. Yeah. Which That's is bizarre. Another the whitest just like, Americana sport ever. No, but it's also predicated on just like sitting back and entering into like this Romanesque, like killing field and just like watching people go at it in this really twisted way and being like, ah, have fun with your brain injury. Have fun with your but, polite gladiator yeah. situation. <laughs> but it is nice to see that it's kind of coming full circle with the Kaepernicks and, and whatnot, you know, making this about social justice and all of those things that matter because I feel like that's kind of what happens is these things become ingrained in the, you know, American day-to-day, what, what's the word I'm looking for? The psyche of the American people. It's like just yeah. part of part of what is normal to be an American is you know and care about football. Yeah. And I think that folks, when they have a platform like that where they're, a, a, you know, a beloved character – then they have a platform to start protesting these things that are ridiculous and, you know, the same way that Native... Well, not the same way, but in the same nature that Native people have been abused by the system, African-American people have been abused by the system, so this platform then becomes a way for those people to bring awareness to that, even though a lot of the population still just thinks it's shitty. I think that part of the population is being shitty. Well, I do feel like it is 
what's so frustrating to me is, and I, you know, am not in any way trying to claim that, you know, in American history, we get the full sense of the African-American struggle because we don't, but we at least acknowledge that slavery happened unless, you know, you're in a place that still considers it the war of Northern aggression, but we're not going to go there. Um, but just hearing this story and how horrible and, you know, to your point, Sparkle, when we just started reading this, we're like, oh, it's a couple of people. And then you find out it was a full on genocide of this entire population. How is this not something that we are just, you know, taught from the get go? This should be a huge deal that everyone has learned in the course of American history. And it's never talked about. And it's just really upsetting that kind of, you know, the original Americans, they don't have any voice in this. And I do hear and, you know, agree with your point of like David Grant, like some of these things that he talks about or the fact that he focuses on this white protagonist in order to tell the story is frustrating because I think the real story is with the Osage people. But I do think if he didn't tell this story, who would tell this story? If he isn't speaking to this, if you know, the people who were affected by this tried to tell the story. No one would listen. Well, also, you're talking about why is it that we're not talking about this story? I, I don't want to be, like, too virtue signaling. I just, just this week, I've come across stories in modern day, just this week, about forced sterilization of Native American populations. I've come yeah. across stories where, um, like, uh, apparently among um, in like Native American Facebook, there are a bunch of women who are putting up uh, these like unsolicited posts that are just to say, like, I love my family. I never kill myself. So if I disappear, you should go and ask after me because if I were to be kidnapped or some way, like if, if I were to just disappear, it is not natural. And it's it's going up all across everybody's timelines because it's just like such a routine day to day thing. That's so horrifying. It's horrifying. It's like you what guys was saw that Wind River, right? Thank you. Yes, that's exactly. Did you see what Wind River Sparkle? No. Oh my lord! You need to see it. When I left that movie, I just wanted to hide in a hole for the rest of my life. It is so sad, and I think that I mean the part of the movie that's so sad is that one nobody knows about this kind of thing. Like this is not part of the public discussion but basically the the story is horrible but the moral of the story is that we have records on every single type of person who goes missing in the united states with the exception of native women we do not have a record of women native women in the united states who go missing so we don't have any statistics on it nobody knows why there's a couple of reasons why and part of it is because a lot of, not a lot of, but there's a portion of Native women who live on reservations. Reservations are managed by a different agency. So there's like state agencies, federal agencies, reservation agencies, and they all keep statistics in a different way. So it's part of like their ability to have some sort of sovereignty is that they can track and monitor their crime. Yeah. However, as a result of that, we don't have statistics on it because it hasn't been something that's been like you know, institutionalized or ingrained into our society. I feel really angry about it right now, and I feel like I need to quit everything I'm doing in my life and just make a make this a thing. Well, but podcast over. Have, it was really nice talking to everybody. Bye-bye. I also have a we problem tried. with, like, the whole white savior complex in general, yeah. and I feel like, you know, white people can't come in and be like, sorry for fucking everything up. Now I'm going to come in and save the day because, like, there's just so many problems with that. And I think that, you know, the people who are involved in these in these kind of struggles, you know, Native people or African-American people or women or whoever is, is you know, subjected to this kind of horrible injustice that happens at the hands of white people, a lot of times white men, but with the complicity of white women, like, they, they are their own saviors and they're doing all of this amazing work to kind of liberate themselves and... and you know, fix the problem. And then it's like a white person comes in and says, Hey, other white people, did you hear about this happening? And, and they get like, all the credit. That's horrible. Exactly. Thank you for well, that's us. Me. We're getting, we're now telling, we're getting the credit. Exactly. But I mean, David Graham gets the credit for telling this story. Yeah, truly. But part yeah. of the problem is that we don't, like, as a society, give 
underrepresented people a platform to represent themselves. Like there, I mean, what was the last movie that you saw that was written, produced, or starred a native person? I don't know. Like literally doesn't happen. Even the main girl in Wind River was not a native person. Speaking of movies and this exact subject, you guys are going to have to remind me because I don't remember recording the last episode did we talk about the fact that this is being turned into a movie? We ah, touched upon No, it. we no, no, we this was something that we were definitely going to get into. Okay, because and, wait, that is I, something Okay, go ahead, Sparkle. I want to close out I want to close out just like part of because I want to get into movie stuff, but I just want to say uh in in close closing the loop. out well, in closing the loop of like I talked to you guys about how one of the things that really bothered me was just how Native American histories were taught in school to us and how just a small, minute difference could just be the ways in which uh, people who aren't living on reservations are introduced these stories. I don't know if this is the case now, but for us, the big problem for me was like, it was introduced as part of this kind of like broader naturalistic theme and it and it wasn't meant to be like here is the truest version of American history it was kind of like like really kind of pocahontas and it was really like uh, White Fang was also taught in this like adjacent to it. I just remember this being this part of this like naturalist scape where what you were supposed to learn from the Native American experience what was taught to kids was like a love of nature and while that's really lovely and important, and we should all love nature, Even there's we don't such a bigger, there's such a bigger, more human-oriented story to tell, and it goes over the course of three hundred years, and it really wasn't ever touched upon. Well, I'm curious, actually, and I'd <laughs> I'd ask anyone who's listening to this podcast to give us some feedback here because I we all went to the same elementary to middle school. And the type of education that we got was really experiential. And so they tried to incorporate all of the different subjects into like one kind of united theme. And I think as a result, glazed over a lot of really important social justice type issues for things that the people who were teaching us, one, knew more about and were more comfortable teaching about, which was like what you know, type of leaf is on a conifer versus, you know, an evergreen. I don't know the difference anymore, but... But you used to. Yeah, you're right. We can identify whales by their fins. By their fins, yeah. We learned that kind of stuff, but we didn't learn a lot about the types of social justice issues that existed. And I think part of that is that the information wasn't as readily available, but I think... Yeah, I think it might have been a generational thing, too. Totally, and I think the internet is so prominent now that that kind of information exists because everyone has their own publishing platform. It's just a matter of finding the information that's out there. And so I feel like people like us who now have, you know, we're more informed, like it's, we should probably do something about trying to transmit that information to younger generations so that they can try to, you know, incorporate that into their general worldview. I mean, I feel like overall, and this is something I think most people could agree with is just there should be more than one perspective. Like I think when we grew up, we read, you know, history from one perspective, we would read literature from one perspective every now and then you'd have kind of, you know, a token author that, you know, would be, it's either this race or this gender or this group that we're learning about in this time, but you didn't read a diverse you know, group of authors, mm-hmm. or you didn't learn about history from different perspectives, even, you know, thinking about, you know, people coming to America, we read that from, you know, this perspective. Every, of the, yeah, every perspective. Yeah, like, we read, like, it was like, diaries. yeah, it was kind of a bummer, like, a lot of Native Americans died, but that was it. That's the like, thing, is that we were, until we were college, I didn't learn how awful it was, because we wouldn't get the gory details, and it was so... Here are our, this is the thing. Here are our touch points with Native Americans. It is either you learn about the first uh, Thanksgiving and then it's like a story of really, you know, it's a really positive interaction theoretically. Yeah. Or you go and watch Pocahontas or you uh, read Little House on the Prairie and in which case they're adversarial or yeah. you read that about them in Mark Twain where they are just um, like boogeymen. 
Yeah. And they don't and, and there's no real presence. And even if in any one of these things you meet nice versions of these people, it's not the same. Uh, like I remember when it came to learning about pilgrims and learning about, you know, the Mayflower. God, I feel like we got to go and read uh, perspectives of people of you know, children on those ships and adults on those ships yeah. and everything like that. I, I think that you really got a experiential range and a lot of conversation about how it must have felt to go and be on this ship. I'm not somebody whose family goes back to the Mayflower. Me either. <laughs> you know? Maybe. So, like, I don't think so. it's just as valuable for somebody like me because I'm already there's already a logical leap there. There's no reason why I'd have to go and, and learn about It's not my history. I could just as easily go and learn about what it would be like to have a bunch of dicks roll up the shore and be like, can we buy this right now? And then, or alternatively, to go and hear about various immigration waves. But the fact is, is that, God, I think that we spent like 72 months really focusing on what was theoretically our shared history. And it's just, it's it's not uh, demographically appropriate at all. It's not statistically appropriate based off of who is receiving the information. That said, we're like 46. Six, I think right now so I have no idea what kids today are learning maybe they're learning that's something really great a really really good point and I've never actually thought about that is that they teach it to you in a way like this is our history mm-hmm. as Americans when in reality I don't think that that is appropriate or representative of the history of most of the children that they're teaching like I have been a Californian for five generations and after that my lineage is like just a, I don't know, a puddle of gray dirt mess. Like nobody knows. It could be anything. And I think that for a lot of people who are from, you know, as from the United States, as far as they can trace back, like they don't know. And I think especially being in California, when we look at our lineage, people are a lot of times are like, well, I like came here from people who just left wherever they were, even if they've been in America for generations and generations. Like we don't look at that as, our shared history because everyone just assumes like you came here for some reason and now you're here. And I think that it's important for people to understand how the United States started because I think that it started with this kind of noble idea, but the nobility of the idea and the execution of the idea didn't go hand in hand, but I think that that's important and it makes it a better story you know, and, and a more authentic story to just tell the truth and let people see like there's good and bad in the, you know, um, origin story of any country. Well, and... above anything, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just gonna say that you know, the good and bad in the origin story of any, sorry, there's cars honking in, in any country. And I think that knowing what the authentic truth is makes it easier to make this a better country and a better place to live for the people who live here now. Well, certainly we need to go and create a new, you know, generation of civically minded people. But I think that above all, the lesson just should be, kids, you're learning something that is excerpted and you're learning one of one trillion different types of stories. And so, for instance, when it came to anything that touched upon what would be reflective theoretically of my history, the only thing you you get a unit on the Holocaust because I'm a Jew, but my family didn't come <laughs> as a as a byproduct of the Holocaust. We came so much sooner than that. So this wasn't actually my history. And I felt I remember thinking at the time because because my mom came to embarrass me and teach Anne Frank's diary. Mom, <laughs> but I remember thinking I remember being like, oh my god. I feel like, you know, everybody's reading this and they're just like looking at me and they're like, and they're oh. like, you're Anne Frank. Yeah. This, you. Is, <laughs> this is the story of you. And I'm like, this is not the story of my family. I mean, this is the broader story of like Jews being hated by their neighbors. But uh, that for my family goes back way sooner. And so around the pogroms, we were like, eh, we, we don't fuck with this. People came over to the U.S. But I just think what there ought to be is a revolving uh, roulette wheel of different experiences with the undercurrent for everything that's like 
you know, I mean, it's the reason that they teach like people's history uh, is it's so that uh, I guess the idea is, is that you're supposed to learn this really orthodox version of your history. And then you're supposed to go and engage with something that turns it all on its head. And those two things are supposed to pair so that you're like, wait a second, I'm a critical thinker now because I yeah, didn't know I what I can know. everything because I didn't know that history was told from the winner's perspective. Yeah, but really and all, turns I, out there's another side to all of this. Exactly. But I don't know if it creates people who are like all of a sudden like, ah, I'm so sophisticated and nuanced and literary minded. I think it just might be like, oh, man, I can't trust anybody. Yeah. I would say when I read this book, I didn't think I was sophisticated and nuanced and literary minded. I thought... I consider myself to be someone that knows a lot about American history, and I barely knew that this had happened. I'd never How heard embarrassing. about it before. And I'd I was like, about it before either. And I was like shouting down my dad. Because I was like, Dad, <laughs> shows what you know. I don't know if you know this, Dad, but I was taught the history of the United States. And, uh, and this was I don't not part this. of it. Not part of it at all. One of the things, too, is... I speaking of bringing this up to your family, I told my mom about this book and I said, I really think this is a story that you need to read about because I just feel like this is a story everyone needs to read about. And her response was basically like, I can't even watch the news on a daily basis. Like I can't <laughs> read that story. And part of me was sympathetic to that because I was like, yeah, I understand. Like there's just, I mean, everything's shit, right? Like everything's shit. The whole yeah. world we get fed all of this shit all the time and things are really hard and horrible. But I also feel like if you have any desire to be present in the world that you exist in, like it is an obligation of yours to read these stories. You should see what contextualizes. You should also see like what contextualizes modern day shit. It's the same reason why right now I'm like digging on this 20 year anniversary kick of, of, uh, you know, uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment. I like, cannot get enough right now. I'm listening and watching everything about it. But part of it is that what's so interesting is that the main players uh, then are the main players today. I mean, these these shadowy right. figures who were going and creating the world that we live in today and their, our political scape today are the same exact people, the same people were in them. And so you you have to go and see. And so the this story is one that took place in 1923, 26 through 31, whatever, thereabouts. <laughs> And in it, the 1900s, like, for sure. In the ni- ni- I believe it. Well, I wanted to create like a really distinct timeline. Post I think it's Gatsby. like 1923 to 1931, post Gatsby and before Facebook. Mm-hmm. I like that's and, the right timeline for sure. <laughs> but it informs so. I mean, it is it is a reflection of the operation of the American government. In in a way that it's just like a stone's throw back, really. It's not, to, I don't know what I'm saying. But anyway, period, end of sentence. <laughs> well, I think it's really easy to look at, look at these things and kind of vilify them. But I also think it circles back to part of the, you know, leading themes in this book, which is these guardians, which is money and power, right? Like whoever yeah. has the money has the power. The more money you have, the more money you have. The more power you have, the more power you have. Yeah. Like it just is this self-perpetuating and, thing. And oh yet my God, all of like, these people had money and their power was still stripped of them. And I found that brown. to be crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. But that's why crazy. I thought like I've always felt like money is power, period. And white people tend to have money because the odds right. are stacked in a way that other people aren't able to accumulate wealth. But then it goes to show it's not just money. It's not just money. Because, these people yeah. had the money and white people still took their power from them. Well, that's and really the, it, 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 well, it just goes and speaks to like modern day senses of impunity because the, you know, you follow, you, you, you see this guy, William Hale, as they theoretically corner in on him. Spoiler alert. He's somebody who really, you know. He's the worst. Uh, yes, he is a lot of the this. bad guy. And he, as they were circling, he was like, I got nothing to hide. I feel good about my chances. And it's just reflective of the fact that, like, he's got, he he is in that beautiful nexus of money and power and influence 
whereby, you know, he knows that like whatever his future, he's going to be safe. He's going to be treated relatively well. And that has that obviously brings us that drops us down right into modern day because you're completely right. It's not like there is not necessarily a one to one relationship of just money and power. It's money, power and you being white because then you're you you are, uh, you know, there are no gatekeepers in the same way. Totally. Well, I was reading a story or a study recently that was talking about how if a white person is born into a wealthy family, their likelihood of being wealthy and more wealthy than their parents is significant. Like it's it's pretty well predicted that if you're a white person who's born into a white wealthy family, you will also in your later days be a white wealthy person. Yeah. But for African-American people, if you're born into a white, wealthy, privileged family, there's a chance that you will not be a privileged, wealthy person in your adulthood, that you can slip right back down because what it takes to remain wealthy and remain in power is so much harder if you are not a white person who is privileged within the system that we exist in. And that is just so anti everything that you're taught in school. Yeah, because that's the thing. these you make things, it, you make it. That's, that's the thing is that the curriculum isn't just here's American history. The curriculum is actually, if I had to go and define it, the curriculum is the American dream. And mm-hmm. that's why and that's why you're hearing about the stories of people who uh, come on the Mayflower and everything like that, because, uh, yes, there's a lot of hard work involved. But the, the, the premise is like they, they come over with nothing and now they have everything because they pulled them up by their bootstraps. But the first Thanksgiving is actually a God, thank God we're here. 70% of us died because the winter was so harsh and because that was such an unrealistic thing we tried to do. The From day one, whatever was the American dream was premised upon was fraudulent. And it's got a really beautiful, poetic uh, idea that you can go ho- and hold on to. And everybody really likes to go and and, you know... I'm not saying that it's a useless thing to imagine just from the vantage point of, you know, an affirmation. But, like, boy, does this book really underline how fraudulent it is. And not to mention, why is it that there are... the Osage Indians, I mean, this is where David Grant... This is the problem a little bit, and this is where I feel David Grant fails. I want to know present day because he goes back present day and he meets people who were related to these people and you get a really tiny sense of the present situation of the Osage Indians. Basically what you know is that the oil fields started to be less productive and so I guess theoretically that is the reason why, you know, we don't have these aristocrats in Oklahoma today. But your point as to the, I remember the New York Times study is completely relevant here, which is that why is it that there is no such thing as intergenerational wealth distribution necessarily for people who aren't white? That is such a good point. And I'm glad we closed that loop so we can talk about Leo. The movie. The movie. I know. I know. I only wanted to say see, I only wanted to say one thing that because I just wanted to go and close out the the more depressing part before we got to the Hollywood part. I feel like that's fair. So who do we think Leo is going to play? Because I think maybe Tom White. Tom White. He could I also assume. be the bad guy because he hope he plays the bad, bad guy. guy. Ooh. Yeah, I hope he plays the bad guy only because. Which one? Like, Ernest or no um, no William Hill William Hill Hill. I think he's gonna well if he's not the FBI agent he's definitely William Hill because I mean remember him in Django he's so hateable Um, I know but that's why I feel like he's done it before and I feel like he's gonna be Tom White because he's only been a cowboy before in the quick and the dead but he was like a teenage cowboy that was trying to prove something to his evil father Gene Hackman so I feel like this is going to be his chance to be like a pew pew cowboy. It, I mean, is it horrible lips. for me to look it up? Look up what? It, is it already on IMDb? Oh. It, it is on IMDb and it's in pre-production. So, okay, let's see. So Who does he play? Up because now that we have our predictions, Brandy thinks it's going to be William Hale. I think it's going to be Tom White. Who's right? Well, Star, you're you're underselling it from the get-go. And I know you know this, but we should start by saying this is a Martin Scorsese joint. Oh. Is it really? This, 
Oh yeah, this is yeah, a real like, ass movie. That's it's going to be bloody. Like he's not going to hold back. Oh, yeah. He's going to show be everything. This is a great movie and I hope that the whole world is outraged. Like we're outraged right now. You guys well, are going to love this. You're going to love this. Play? Who? Is no, no, no. So far, at least on IMDb, Leo is the only person cast in it so far. There is Excellent. no information. You know what? I'm gonna sign cast into IMDb. Pro. So I will say He's I cast heard a no. There's no information. Okay. I'm, but so I, I am, heard a, I'm signing into the pro. I did my, hear a rumor yeah. that Robert De Niro was attached, and I don't Ooh, know who he would He would probably would be play. a good William Hale. Unless he was. Yeah, Hoover. he would. Oh, he could be. A yeah. I disagree no, I feel like with myself. Hoover Do we think Leo could play Hoover again? You know what I really, really, really hope is that they actually cast Native people in the role of Native people. I'm glad that you said that because when I was reading about it, so it's happening right now. It's pre-production, so obviously There's Sparkle's been looking it up. Not much attached. has set. If they cast Scarlett Johansson, no, I will well, yeah, but so <laughs> flip a table. Basically, it sounded like um, there was a petition to, one, get it filmed in Oklahoma and, you know, the Osage population was really pushing for, like, hey, can we actually cast our own people in this? Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be our story. And their concern is that this is going to be portrayed similarly in the book, um, where they felt like they were cast as the victims. Yeah. And they wanted it to be told more as their story and not focused on, you know, the white perception. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I hope that all happens and that Leo is hot as fuck playing whoever he plays. I wish well, we had for so sure much more he's time one to talk about that because he's I feel like definitely hot as fuck. No, he's definitely hot as fuck. I I'm on the IMDb pro page and it tells me nothing more other than I actually I have the phone number for the production company so we could just call them and Can ask. you call them? We could call them. I feel like it's a little after hours. But one thing is for sure, ladies and gentlemen, he looks hot as fuck. I mean, it's going to happen. Yeah. Is that news to anyone? Sploosh. He's looking, it's like, he's got a really nice IMDb photo. He's like really well chosen, really beautiful. To play whoever it is he's going to play. Yeah. His star meter, just, you know, spoiler alert. The star Uh, meter, uh, he's at number 17, which is, for somebody who hasn't. Why'd they add a seven? (laughs) That's That's a good question. That's a good question. So, y'all, we're, like, hitting the end here, and I know, Sparkle, you already mentioned that your rating was about 2.5. We rate (laughs) things here on a 10 scale, so is it fair to say you give this book a 5 out of 10? I would say, after talking about this, you guys have kind of swayed me a bit. Oh, hey, are you at a 6 now? I'm at a 6, for sure, because I think that David Grant... I I think that David Grant... Probably, I think David Grant's editor probably could have dispersed some of the action a little bit more evenly. I think that the end is really uh, like hamstringed by David Grant's sudden need to press like send. And I don't, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot more there and I would love to read Killers of the Flower Moon 2. I also, the sequel. I also have to say that my, it would be maybe a seven had it not been for the broader publishing industry being like, this is about the FBI. <laughs> fair enough. And I'm what glad. a strange I feel like marketing tactic. <laughs> very bizarre. I wonder, but it got us reading it, didn't it? So okay. my rating is a 7.5. What? Because ah! I loved the story. I really enjoyed reading it. I ate it up. Um, but it is funny because similarly, I think I started at a higher number. And then Sparkle, you brought me down a little bit because <laughs> it did make me realize I loved the story. But, you know, if anyone had written the story, would I have given it a high rating? Probably because it was the story I loved more so than the way it was told. What do you think, Brandy? <laughs> I would have given this, and I i guess that's a weird way to phrase it, I give this an 8.5. Oh my god, All we right. unknowingly went from low to high. Tell us and why. the reason why is because, generally speaking, I like these kinds of stories, and also I, unlike both of you, enjoy ending a story with being like, I need to Google for 14 hours now. 
because I wanted to know more. I thought this was important, and I think that ending the ending the book in the way that it ended, which was just like, and everything's shit. I it just made me feel like there was work to be done, and yeah. I wanted to be involved and do something, and it made me want to pay attention to like the things that were happening. And to, I think that if this book had tied up in a nice little bow and been like, and these are all the things that have happened since then, I would have been like, okay, I can set this down now. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I felt I did not feel like I could set this down. I felt like you needed to. Know this more. is the end of the book, and the story keeps going, and I need to tell everyone about this, and I need to share this story and learn more about it. And I think that all of those things are important. And I don't know if it was an intentional way of ending the book that the readers would feel that way, but I definitely felt that way. And I viewed that as a good thing and not like a, I can't believe you left me hanging. You know, I was like, please leave me hanging. And so I can do more of this on my own. Well, that's a very good point. And now I feel like an asshole. Well, I'm the only non-asshole in this podcast. That is true. And we're off. Goodbye. Wait, no, 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 no. (laughs) I was going to say, I have the perfect way to end this. And everything is shit. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, next week we are going to be reading Crazy Rich Asians, um, part one. So we haven't read the book yet. We're just going to chat about it a little bit. And then week after that, spoilers abound. Woohoo. See you later. Wait. Also, I, oh, we ended, it's ended. (laughs) 